We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hi friends, welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 189. Today I want to talk about something that I feel like a lot of us use as an aid and a tool in our riding across multiple disciplines, but when I went to go do some research, I found a lot of vague and generalized information, even about the use and the regulations within the sport. So I thought talking about spurs would be really important because they're actually a big part of our history as equestrians. So let's first start with some Spur 101 and how spurs originated. So let's do a little history lesson, shall we? I did a lot of research and I found some of the most helpful information from American Equus. Their website had kind of a really nice outlined version of the history of the spur, as well as royalspurs.com. They gave a really cool kind of history of the origination of the spur. So I wanted to make sure I cited my sources, but those websites were super helpful. Um, Some of the earliest noted spurs were used during the Iron Age in the 5th century BC. But some historians say that some of the early, early spurs were made out of bone or wood. A lot of the early spur usage was to free up their hands um, during riding or even combat. A lot of knights were awarded spurs and given to the, given them as gifts, and it was kind of a sign of rank. They ended up getting pretty fancy with spurs, with sometimes plating them in gold or precious jewels or stones, and really kind of a work of art, which was more in the 15th century. Americans ended up adapting the style of the spur to suit their needs, but originally, Americans used solid brass with a slight curve and a rowel until the Civil War. Then they underwent another design change to a straight neck without a rowel, which is what we'll usually see today in many of the disciplines. So a lot of spurs today have a similar look to them. They have the rounded part that goes behind your heel on your boot that usually sits on the spur rests of your boots. Those are the little pieces of material that stick out on your ankle of your boots. You can either put them there. Some people like to put them below the spur rest depending on what they're looking to accomplish and what type of riding they're doing. Almost always the spur straps come separately. These are usually pieces of thin leather with hole punches. Um, It looks like a miniature belt. So you get two of them, one for each spur, and there are usually two holes on either side of the metal part of the spur that goes around your foot. Proper etiquette is once you have the spur on and you are fastening it with the spur strap, the extra flap of the piece of leather should be pointing outwards or away from your horse's sides. So I usually, when I'm first kind of threading a pair of spurs, I take the spur and look down at it like a bird's eye view and make sure I'm threading each spur in the opposite direction so that when I go to put on the spur, that extra flap is pointing outwards. Also, a very popular spur shape, uh, Prince of Wales, it looks just like usually a tiny nub. They can get a little bit longer, but it's just almost like a cylinder shaped added to the back of your ankle. 
So what I always like to make sure I do is the proper shape of the spur is that if you look at it from the side, that extra shank piece should be slightly bent downwards. So you wanna make sure that you are threading it properly so that that extra piece that's going into your horse's side is not pointing upwards. Now let's talk about types of spurs because there are literally hundreds of different styles of spurs. And usually they just vary on the material or the severity or sharpness of what they can do. I typically ride in a spur every single day, no matter what type of horse that I'm riding, but I have a very small Prince of Wales style spur. It's basically just a nub. The Prince of Wales allows it to have a little bit of an edge to it, but you can also get metal rounded, which is a little bit lighter, and you can even get rubber ball spurs, which are even less severe. So really depending on your horse, I would highly recommend you talking to your trainer or a fellow colleague to talk about different types of spurs and which one would best suit the horses that you're riding. Obviously, you can always play with the placement of the spur too. If you are using a similar spur for multiple horses, but one needs a little bit more assistance than the other, you can always pull your spur up so that you have a little bit more contact with your horse's sides, or you can put it down if you're needing a little less contact and you just need a reminder every so often. Some of my favorite types of spurs that I always have in my riding backpack are the Prince of Wales, which are probably one of the most popular um, just because they're very simple and standard while still having that slightly sharp edge to be able to be a little bit effective. That is also the one that you want to make sure they always come at a slight slant downward. Um, so again, when you're threading your spur, you want to make sure that that is pointing downward. The rollerball is another popular spur, and it can be made out of many different materials, but essentially it has a free-moving ball, can either be rubber or plastic or metal, that rolls in a horizontal manner. So this one is really good for a horse that kind of needs a little bit more of a constant encouragement to go forward and stay connected, and that rollerball just allows you to do that without making any sort of injury or fatigue to the horse's sides. Another popular one is the Waterford Spur. It can also be called the rounded end spur or the ball spur. Um, and this is one that I was talking about before that it can be a very gentle spur with rubber or with a rounded metal, but this is also a super popular one. The Rowell Spur is sometimes used in English disciplines, not just kind of your standard Western discipline. It has a much different look than the rest because it has that spinning rowel. Some call it pizza cutter if you have if if you've seen ones that have that rounded shape without the teeth. The teeth on the rowel obviously involve some extra sharpness, but I have seen a lot of people use the rowel with the smooth rotating disc that does offer the sharpness without the teeth. Again, definitely talk to your trainer or a fellow professional if you have questions about the type of spur you should be using. If you've been riding for a bit, chances are you have the blisters, saddle sores, and rubs on your feet and your heels to prove it. So Dreamers and Schemers has amazing boot socks that are not only super cute, but they have a lightly padded and moisture wicking footbed and flat seam toe to really protect those problem areas. 
But not only are Dreamers and Schemers socks a great way to express yourself in a subtle way, but they also have an amazing feature, and that is the black cuff at the top of the sock to prevent any pattern peekaboo in the ring. The super fun colors and amazing quality also extends to the other Dreamers and Schemers products, and those are the main Jane leather belts and leather spur straps. They literally carry any color and texture leather you can possibly think of with amazing reversible belts, I love the main Jane belts, and really heavy duty and fashionable spur straps. So to find out more information, head over to their website at dreamersandschemers.com. That's D-R-E-A-M-E-R-S n-s-c-h-e-m-e-r-s dot com. Thank you so much, dreamers and schemers. All right, let's head back to the episode. As a trainer, real quickly, I would love to just run through some do's and don'ts of general spur use. Obviously, the spur rests on your boot are acting as a guide for generally where your spur should rest. I don't think there are many situations where the spur should go much higher above that spur rest, but feel free if you need to have a little bit less engagement with the spur to wear that spur below the spur rest. There are situations for higher than the spur rest, but that is something, again, I feel like you should consult with your trainer or another professional. Because it goes into their side in such a way, having the spur that high up causes more of a constant connection with that spur. The use of spur is for an added stimulus or encouragement to your horse so that you can be very clear with what you want your horse to do. A lot of times if you have a lazy horse or a horse that struggles with straightness and you aren't wearing a spur, it's really hard to get your point across and your your leg aids end up being very dull to the horse. You're working a lot harder, your horse isn't respecting your aids, and it's just an overall lose-lose situation. But if you can properly use a spur and be able to, just like with connection through the reins, you use the reins in a connection when you want to get a point across, whether that is putting a horse into a frame, bending them in, steering, turning, doing any of that. And then once they do that, you reward the horse by softening your hand. You want to use the spurs in the same way. You want to use them effectively and very clearly when you use them. And when the horse does what you want them to do, you take that spur pressure off. Spurs are not meant for constant engagement to the horse's side. That can often lead to spur rubs or even breaking of the skin. This leads me to a lot of regulations within horse show and spur use. I was doing some research because I feel like there's just kind of some floating information about what's allowed and what's not allowed with spurs. So I did some digging and what I found was very vague. It was very much so not clear cut. Um, Also, each discipline, I looked at a lot of disciplines, but I'm going to touch on the dressage, eventing, equitation, hunter-jumper areas in this episode. Based on U.S. Equestrian's rulings for a dressage horse, only blunt metal spurs, for example, without rowels, no longer than 3.5 centimeters are permitted. 
for FEI pony rider tests and the maximum length for spurs used in other classes and tests are 5.08 centimeters or two inches, including any rowel that would be added to the spur. This restriction also applies to warm up and training areas as well as during competition. For eventers, the ruling is that spurs are optional for all three tests. Spurs capable of wounding a horse are forbidden. Spurs must be of smooth metal. They have to be pointing towards the rear and they cannot be longer than four centimeters. Metal or plastic spurs with round, hard plastic or metal knobs with no shank are allowed. In the equitation section of the U.S. equestrian rulings, spurs are optional, but if used, they must be a conservative color. The blunt end is allowed and unroweled only. Spurring and kicking in the front of the girth results in elimination. For hunter horses, horse welfare section says that excessive use of the spurs or spurring resulting in broken and bleeding skin is prohibited. And then under the abusive horses section, excessive use of whips and or spurs must not be used to reprimand a horse. Such use is always excessive, as is any that results in horse's skin being broken. So with all that being said, it's very general, but the consensus is that if you are wearing a spur that would result in any harm to the horse, any broken skin, then obviously that is prohibited. The problem I feel like a lot of people would have with this is that there are lots of spurs that would be maybe considered very gentle that if not used properly or put on correctly or if you have an imbalance in your body, there's so many different factors, that you could give your horse a spur rub or even break the skin. There also are factors with the horse. Some horses have more sensitive skin and can bleed easy, can break their skin easy, can show more inflammation. So that's something to consider as well. Because of all those factors, I think a safe rule of thumb is better to be safe than sorry. And if you have that time to practice, really test out the spurs and see which ones you feel like are the most effective while still being gentle enough to your horse's sides. Again, this is not meant to be a weapon, but a tool, just like a stick or dressage whip, or even your aids, your natural aids of your seat, your legs, your hands, your eyes, your voice. Those should just be, your spurs should be just an addition of that, that just allows you to become a very clear communicator with your horse. That's how I see it. And I think without the other extreme situations of people abusing the use of spurs, I think they can be made as a positive so that your horse has a really clear idea of what you want them to do. Obviously, would love for everyone to follow the rules, but there are some situations of people going outside of those rules and they do create breaking of the skin and those things do happen, whether it's intentional or not. Something that is super intentional that was a little bit of a buzz earlier this year are, pun intended, yikes, electric spurs, which are illegal and inhumane. Earlier this year, Horse Network came out with an article about Andrew Kosher, who will not be competing for a decade. He had a 10-year ban and disqualified from eight events by the FEI for the use of electric spurs in international competition. 
So this is obviously taken extremely seriously and is not something that is tolerated by the Federation. There are situations where people can give their horses spur rubs and break the skin even, and it was a complete accident. These things happen, and it's okay. It's not ideal, obviously, and I would prefer for you to work up to a sharper spur if that's what you need, but these things happen, whether it's an imbalance of one side from either horse or rider, sensitive skin, not using the spur correctly, these things happen. So I wanted to go through a couple things that one can help heal those spur rubs or help the hair grow back, and then also some preventative things as well. If you have a horse that is prone to spur rubs, I think one of the best things to invest in is a spur guard, or some call it a belly guard. Equifit has an amazing one, and essentially it just wraps around the horse's belly. You put that on first, and then you put on your square pad and your half pad and your saddle. And then there are some extra pieces that clip onto the saddle as well as Velcro over the girth and it stays super secure but it just gives a nice clean and thin barrier between your leg and the horse's sides so that you can still be effective less effective but effective they can still feel your side without having that spur in their side I have people who still use spurs and a spur guard, but just that extra barrier helps them not rub any of the horse's skin or add any sensitivity. If you do get a spur rub on your horse, something to make sure that you do is to keep the area very clean. And there are several topical creams and ointments and even hair growth formulas to help heal spur rubs and get that hair back. I'll include some links on the website page for this podcast episode of some of my favorite products to help with the healing of these spur rubs or to help the hair grow back. I will also link my favorite belly guard, which I feel like you should always have one in your barn just in case you have a sensitive horse or if you are trying to heal a slight spur rub and are wanting to continue to work your horse. So that's all I have for you. I hope you found this helpful. I just thought it was very interesting and it's actually a very deep-rooted tool in history. So I thought that was really cool. And just to reiterate the idea that I think spurs can be a super effective and completely ethical tool when used properly. Our horses are such wonderful animals and they are so eager to please. And sometimes we're not very good at giving direction. So my view on spurs is that if I can have a tool to give my horse the clearest direction possible so he feels confident in knowing that what he's doing is exactly what I'm asking him to do, then I feel like something like that needs to be celebrated, but also needs to be educated on so that we all know what we're doing, how we're using this tool, and how we can use it in a positive way. Again, I'll have more information and links on the web page for this episode, episode 189, as well as all of the resources because I had some wonderful resources out there to learn about Spurs myself. So thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you soon. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.